Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Let us pause in life's pleasures and count her many tears. Oh, we all share in sorrow with the poor. It's a song that will linger forever in our ears. Oh, hard times come again no more. It's a song. You know, that song, it does hark back uh, to times not just uh, of poverty uh, and, and other kinds of troubles, but specifically to times of disease, too. Uh, and that's very much the theme of our show today. <laughs> that actually sounds really gloomy, the way I just put it. And it's not going to be that way at all. But we Because we, we have important lessons to learn from all this stuff, uh, from the stories of the past. And they're, for the most part, or at least in many cases, really good lessons and really inspiring stories of people who figured out ways to deal with problems that occurred long, long before we started thinking about those problems. And here to help us get started is Richard Conniff, one of our favorite writers, National Magazine Award-winning writer for Smithsonian Magazine, National Geographic, and other publications, also former Guggenheim Fellow. And his new book is Ending Epidemics, A History of Escape from Contagion. Uh, He's with us now. Hello, Richard Conniff. Hey, Colin. How are you? Good Uh, to be here. Yeah, and good to hear your voice. Um, So, yeah, I mean... (laughs) We really do want to talk about history in the past. It's very hard to do that right now. I mean, we're like hard up against this kind of recrudescence of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and and his uh, arguments about vaccines. And there are an awful lot of echoes into the past of your book. But let's start somewhere else. Um, Let's start with the idea of, well, actually, we can start on the presence and say, you know, right now there is polio. Polio virus is turning up in wastewater. There are cases of polio infections. This is an example of a disease that appeared to be fully eradicated, uh, and suddenly uh, some things are happening, probably because people are getting, some communities, some places in the world are getting kind of lax about this whole idea of getting vaccinated. That's a repeated lesson in your book, right? That a, a horrible disease is eradicated, and then people forget how horrible it was and how worth it it is to make sure it stays way, way in the memory. Yeah, that's exactly the message of the book. People forget um, that, you know, not so long ago, uh, I mean, speaking of hard times, it was normal for one child in three to die before the age of five, usually from infectious diseases. Um, and, and yeah, all of these diseases that... I actually started because I had forgotten one disease. I started thinking about the book. I in my work um, for National Geographic and other magazines, I've traveled all over the world, and um, I, as a result, have this uh, World Health Organization 
um, yellow certificate of vaccination. And it is really full with many, many vaccinations, which have kept me safe in many developing countries. Um, but one thing that I was getting regularly was the diphtheria vaccine. It's called DTAP or, or, or um, um, yeah, it's DTAP. It's diph diphtheria, tetanus, and, and pertussis or whooping cough. But I didn't know what diphtheria was. And then I started to read about that and particularly about an epidemic that happened in New England in the 1730s. And for some reason, I got hooked on one family in Massachusetts that lost three kids in the course of about two days uh, to pertussis, um, uh, a disease that was known as the strangling angel because it, it basically choked children to death. Um, and then they lost a couple more after that. And, and they went through their entire family of nine children and and many families in New England then uh, lost families that were, you know, as large as 13 children. People didn't understand how the disease spread. They actually had their kids line up um, when one, one family member was dying of diphtheria, lined up and kissed the, the, the victim goodbye. Um, and as a result, passed uh, yep. the infection through their entire family. It was horrible. Anyway. Um, that that family, I went to visit their graves in, um, I think it's Lancaster, Massachusetts, and that just got me thinking about all these diseases that all of us have forgotten about. Right. Let's stay with pertussis for a second, because uh, I, once again, I don't want people to think that the whole book is about the angel of death. It's about these pretty inspiring things that happen and these truly unsung heroes, a lot of whom seem to be women. So in the 1930s, uh, pertussis is still killing people every year, uh, a lot of infants. Uh, and uh, two people, their names are Kendrick and Eldering, and they are largely lost to history, I think, except for uh, Richard Connor's fine book. Uh, explain who these two women were and, and what they were trying to do about pertussis. Well, so uh, pertussis or whooping cough um, was killing 4,000 kids a year back then, and, you know, up into the 1940s. Um, and uh, these two women had gotten work in uh, state public health labs. It was not intellectually very challenging work. You had to do a lot of routine tests. And when men had the chance, they um, they would take university jobs or jobs that had more prestige or bigger salaries. And in uh, that became a problem in World War One because men were also off at war. So they started to hire women. Um, it's really a first opportunity for women to get a, a door in a foot in the door of science. And um, anyway, these two uh, educated themselves. They got um, doctorates in in infectious diseases, and then they came back. and And one of them, Pearl Kendricks, said, told her boss at the Michigan State um, Public Health Lab that she wanted to study one disease and um, and do the work after hours. And he told her to go ahead. He said, "Sure, if if it amuses you." Um, which I felt was a little patronizing, mm -hmm. but in any case, it, it did amuse them. And they went on. They started um, by looking at samples from kids who had whooping cough. They identified the bacteria, which they had never seen before, by comparing it to pictures in a textbook. Uh, seven weeks later, they had developed their first vaccine. And, and then, and, from, and, and we should uh, say, that I think you say it's cooking with no recipe. This is not at yeah. a time where everybody knew how to make a vaccine. They just didn't know how to make this one. This is at a time where the whole notion of developing a vaccine was pretty hit or miss, uh, at least compared to what it is now. You bet. And in fact, uh, the, the men who had made uh, whooping cough vaccines at that point, 
uh, had generally failed. Everyone might think most experiments with vaccines would have failed then. And, um, and in 1942, the AMA said um, that there was no effective, or actually it was earlier than that, it was in the 1930s, said there was no effective uh, whooping cough vaccine. So um, these two women steadily improved their vaccine. And then they got the uh, residents of Grand Rapids, Michigan, to volunteer their children to be tested. Okay, now that's hard for us to imagine now because it, it's an experimental drug by uh, two women who are um, working with, in what they call their midnight hours after they had done their, their routine day's work of, of tests. And, um, you know, no university backing or anything like that. But those parents knew just how horrible whooping cough was how you held a child in your arms and the child couldn't breathe. It was just a, a, a continuous coughing. And then there was this incredible, desperate gasping for air that produced that whooping sound. And you felt, you know, that the kid was going to die. And and in fact, often they did die. And so parents were uh, desperate to have a, a way of preventing that. And this vaccine was potentially that way. So they did it and they got good results, um, very good results actually, um, in, in preventing the disease. And um, the male establishment um, said, well, eh, yeah, not so much. There's one guy who's, who says basically from afar, from a distance goes, well, this can't be any good. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not doctors, they're not me. Uh, no. They're working after hours in a lab. And then he goes and he's kind of, well, you know, actually it is pretty good what they're doing here. It is. And, and and what he did then, because he was actually a, a legitimately good epidemiologist, um, was propose a, a way to improve their testing strategy so that it would be um, uh, less prone to being uh, questioned and to be, um, you know, it was, so it would be more likely to be factual. And they did it again, and the results were even better. And then somebody else did the same study independently, and their vaccine um, in the 1940s became the standard um, way of preventing vaccine. And you can see the charts. This is true of a lot of successful vaccines. You can see the charts where the disease incidence just takes this nosedive down to zero in this country. And then um, their, their whooping cough vaccine um, got adopted um, by countries worldwide, making whooping cough um, an increasingly rare disease. So I want to I want to hone in on um, that whole idea of because you know we are in an environment now where people are like cats turning up their nose nose of their food. I don't think I want an MMR vaccine for my kids. So because they haven't seen anything really bad happen, they haven't seen waves yes. of children uh, born with with uh, birth defects and and, and birth pro uh, abnormalities and problems, including autism. Ironically enough, given what the conversation is, but let's stay away from that for just a second and. And just talk about the history of people welcoming this the way the people of Grand Rapids did. Let's go back a little further. I love the expedition sent out by King Carlos of the Fourth of Spain in I think 1803 uh, to to go bring. So this is 1803, and it's like let's go bring some vaccines and some cures of smallpox to the Americas, which sounds just amazing. And and so say a little bit more about it and and how they were welcomed in say Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, so um, th th this vaccine had been uh, developed by Edward Jenner in um, 1796. Um, he was a, a country physician in the west of England, and he developed it from a disease of cows that happened to be closely related to smallpox. 
um, it's called cowpox. Um, and, um, and it spread across Europe uh, with incredible speed because people knew just how bad smallpox was. Basically, everybody got smallpox then. And, um, it, you know, it would come in these recurring epidemics. And sooner or later, you were going to get it. And the chances were good that you were going to die. It's like 15% mortality in Europe. And if if you were in North America and Native American, it was more like 90% in some in some areas. Um, so, um, so yeah, when when um, this arrived in Spain, which it did almost immediately, um, the Spanish king had experienced um, smallpox in his own family, as everybody had. Oh, and I should say one other thing about smallpox. It doesn't just kill people. It maims them horribly. Mm-hmm. There's a photograph early yeah. in the book of two children um, who got inf- exposed to, to smallpox on the same day. One of them had been vaccinated and the other not. One kid, the one who was vaccinated, has perfectly clear skin. The other, it just looks like food that's been left on a road for you know a very hot day and run over by a lot of cars. His face is a horrible mess, his whole body really. And 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 people came away from that permanently scarred and um, and you know in losing uh, their sight, um, you know having their noses permanently um, out of place. Um, um, and so anyway, when it came to Spain, um, this king said, "This is too too good to keep to ourselves." And um, he organized this international expedition and brought the disease. Uh, brought the disease. Brought the um, the, the vaccine. Uh, around the world to Spanish colonies everywhere. Can I, you should pardon the expression, can I inject a detail here, which is that um, it was a live uh, a live virus vaccine or live vaccine. And so the, and they didn't have you know, liquid nitrogen or anything like that in 1803. So they brought these kind of foundling kids who, who they sort of intermittently injected with the vaccine, right? Just to sort of make it possible to still have a live vaccine by the time I, I don't really I can't really describe it. I'm sure you can the kind of scientific process that this is. But in order to show up in Puerto Rico or Venezuela or someplace and have a vaccine, you kind of had to keep giving it to a different kid. Yes, and they did that, and they did that. They had 22 kids on board, um, and they did two kids at a time just to be safe. And so, in succession, that that got the disease alive across the Atlantic. Um, and I forget where they landed first. Was it B- Venezuela or, or was, Peru? Was, uh, well, didn't they go to Puerto Rico first? And Puerto Rico said, you know what? We're good. Yeah, We're fine. Uh, Somebody else already got here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's amazing that that happened. But but yeah, that's how good this vaccine was and how, what a relief it was to people. Um, and then in the in, in, they went to another country where they were greeted with fireworks and, and parades and, yeah. and masses and so on. So um, it was... Um, it was a great um, event. Yeah, and, and just to hammer home that point, you know, like you know, welcoming heroes, uh, in, in welcomed heroes uh, in in Venezuela, because this disease was killing and disfiguring so many people. People were going, "Really, you have something that might actually help? My God, bring it yes. over here!" Uh, and, yes. and there isn't that kind of finickiness that we encounter now. And and I'm assuming. The finickiness is kind of we are spoiled and forgetful and we don't read books like yours and we don't understand our own history uh, and we don't understand how how bad these things can get and and why you want to have something to fight them with. Yeah, that's exactly right. We don't remember it at all. And and that's also, you know, again, the other reason I wrote the book, because I want people to remember both how bad it was and how lucky we are to have these people who – 
prevented us from getting these diseases. You know, one of the one of the most surprising things for me in the course of writing the book. Um, well, there were lots of surprising things, but 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 this one in particular, I was going through my parents' papers for some reason, and I found this um, uh, this folder full of sacred documents, you know, baptismal certificates and things like that. And in the middle of it, they had my vaccination certificate for polio from the first year of the Salk vaccine. In, in, in mine was in uh, May of 1956, and um, I just found that. You know, there. You know, my father and my uncle both had polio. My uncle was crippled for life, um, and you know, summer then was a polio season, and suddenly um, they didn't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. It's a, so as long as we're on polio, let's tell two stories. Or you're going to tell them. The first one, I'm sitting here in Hartford, and there was a, a, a son of Hartford named John Andrews. He's up in Boston by the time this happens. And and so there's a there are so many, I mean, we we think of it as the sock vaccine or the Sabin vaccine. But as you kind of make clear in the book, these really are team efforts. A lot of people put together little pieces along the way. And even once the you get the vaccine, you haven't solved the problem. You need to educate the public. You've got to figure out things like bifurcated needles so you can inject a, a lot more people. But there are these little pieces of knowledge that come along the way. And so uh, Enders was trying to, was aware that there was something that medical science did not quite understand uh, about kind of where polioviruses turn up in the body. I'll let you take the story from there. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a disease, polio is a disease that affects the nervous system. And it was thought that it, it could only grow in neural tissue. Um, and the trouble with that was that somebody had attempted a vaccine in the 1930s, developed from neural tissue of monkeys. And it was a ca catastrophic failure. It actually caused children's deaths, um, a small number, but enough to be traumatic for the entire um, enterprise of developing a polio vaccine. And this was March of Dimes uh, era. And people, the entire country was really caught up in this idea of ending polio, but they couldn't get past this barrier. So one day, John Enders and a couple of the people he worked with at Harvard um, were, um, were fooling with this um, way of, of, um, of growing cell tissues. And it's 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 basically it it looks like the part of a of a handgun that you put the bullets into that round barrel, um, and instead of putting bullets in there, you would put in um, a, a a tube, a test tube with a sample in it, and then you would rotate the drum every few days in order to oxygenate the sample and help it live. And so, as they're working with this, Ender says, "Well, let's try all of these tissues and not just nerve tissue." And so his two assistants said, "Well, that's not going to work." But they did it because he was the boss. And um, and a couple of days later or a couple of weeks later, um, they looked at it and the polio had grown in non-neural tissue. And um, that is what made possible the salt vaccine. Um, it, it, it was what made possible the oral vaccine that um, Sabin later developed as well. So it was a huge step. And yeah. it's kind of interesting. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, well first of all, I want to say we're, we're not going to have time to do Isabel Morgan. People are going to have to read the book. But this is another incredible woman figure who did something unbelievably important about polio. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, is just, once again, mostly lost to history, except for thanks to Richard Conniff and ending epidemics. Could I just inject a quick public service announcement? 
Wash your hands with soap and water um, <laughs> because because people are now, you know, we had an outbreak of norovirus uh, over the last year uh, and norovirus is like polio. Stuff that's in your poop, stuff that's fecal oral transmission tends not to respond to hand sanitizers. They don't work. Uh, you really need to wash your hands with soap and water, uh, particularly if you've been exposed to polio or norovirus or anything like that. I think people are sort of getting lazy about that because they keep the sanitizer in their car or their handbag or whatever. They think they've actually cleaned their hands. So I want to, I want to, you know, we're going to run out of time here. And I apologize because this book is fascinating and it's just great storytelling as usual by Richard Conniff. But, you know, every Saturday I listen to this podcast in uh, This Week in Virology, and on Saturdays they have this great clinician, uh, Dr. Daniel Griffin, on. And he always says at the end of the podcast, nobody's safe until everybody's safe. Uh, and what he means is if you don't make the world safe, you're not going to be safe. I mean there's a moral reason to want to make the world and its poorest areas safe. But if you don't have that, then have a selfish reason, which is it's going to come back to you. Uh, and yeah. so I'd like to end maybe with this, you know, just go back to smallpox for a second. And this incredible effort launched in 1966 by the World, World Health Organization, they essentially gave themselves 10 years to eradicate, truly eradicate smallpox because despite all the stuff that good old King Carlos did, smallpox is still around. Uh, but it was eradicable. And so say a little bit about this just incredible marshalling of global forces to go after this disease. Yeah, this is one of the great episodes, heroic episodes in human history. So the the World Health Organization designated this team of, of, of um, infectious disease uh, workers and, and they went out and they um, got uh, they targeted first the remote countries where they thought they could eradicate the disease and not have a risk of of reinfection because you know jet travel wasn't so much of a thing then. Um, they succeeded in those two countries, and then the workers from those countries, that is the, the the local workers, went on to other countries and and took what they had learned and and passed it on so that it could be used everywhere. And this became this kind of global army of as many as 150,000 people at a time in the field looking for cases of smallpox, trying to contain the smallpox within an increasingly narrow area and, um, and you know, get people vaccinated. And so they didn't succeed in 10 years. But, you know, they, they, I, I have to tell you, they, 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 they went out into deserts, they went out into civil wars, um, there was a helicopter pilot at one point. Who yeah, this is my. This is one of my favorite stories from the book. So he was kidnapped by um, bandits in in uh, Ethiopia, and his response was to vaccinate his kidnappers. <laughs> and by that kind of, of incredibly intense focus, um, they managed to eradicate this really deadliest of human diseases that had been with us for thousands of years. They managed to eradicate it in. 12 years. Yeah. 12 so years. They, they chased down the last case in Mogadishu in 12 years. Uh, uh, I think it's an incredible story. And I do love the helicopter pilot because, you know, as long as you're kidnapping me, would you mind? Would you like to get a shot? Would you like to get vaccinated? Yeah. I'm sure the kidnappers go, oh, yeah, no, we, we don't want to get smallpox. We're kidnappers. Uh, listen, we have to stop now. I, I am reluctant to do that, but we have some more guests coming along here. The, the book is terrific, Dick. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, uh, Ending Epidemics, A History of Escape from Contagion. It's got a scary looking cover, but the stories are really inspiring, and they're really, really important in terms of the moment that we're in right now. So Richard Conniff, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Colin. All right. We're going to take a little break. Uh, we're going to talk about the concept of patient zero when we get back. It's all vaccination all across the nation. Keep it from 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Served you champagne like a hero when you landed someone carried your back. From here on out, your patient zero, smelling ether as they hand you the rack. Life is good. You look around. All right, we're going to explore this concept of patient zero. You hear it a lot. It's obviously the, the so-called index case. It's the case, first case anybody knows about. Uh, it has uh, a certain stigma to it, I think, and it has a certain uh, narrative uh, purpose that is not always entirely uh, for the benefit of everybody. The, the, I think the rare exception being uh, the movie Contagion, where you know a lot of things are Gwyneth Paltrow's fault. Uh, and so you're going to hear Dr. Aaron Mears, played by Kate Winslet, uh, trying to get uh, Aaron Barnes, uh, played by Dan Aho, off a bus after learning he had contact with Beth Emhoff, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, B1 cap. Hello, Hello? Mr. Barnes? Yes. This, this is Dr. Mears from the Centers for Disease Control. I believe, hi. hi. I believe you may have had contact with Beth Emhoff last week. Yeah, I picked her up at the airport. What's this about? <coughs> How are you feeling today? Uh, pretty cruddy, to be honest. Head is pounding. I probably picked up some sort of bug. Where are you right now? I'm on the bus, heading to work. I'd like you to get off immediately. Wait, what? What's going on? Where? 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 Where's the bus, Aaron? Um, uh, Lake and Lindale. Can you tell me what's Lake going on? Lake and Lindale. I really need you to get off that bus. Listen, it's quite possible you've come in contact with an infectious disease and that you're highly contagious. What? What? Do you understand? I want you to get okay. off now and I'm stay away from other all right. So uh, joining us now is uh, Leila May, a New York-based writer uh, and medical historian. She has a PhD in American history and writes about disease, risk, and race. We found some of her work in one of our favorite publications, which is either called Eon, Aeon, or Ion. We've been talking about this magazine, online magazine, for I think 14 years now, and we don't know what it's how to pronounce it. Um, but uh, we know the articles are good. Uh, her piece on Patient Zero, the seductive lie of Patient, patient Zero and the outbreak narrative uh, is what kind of got us started down this road. So, uh, Leila May, welcome to our show. Thank you. Glad to be here. 
So there is, I think, you know, uh, uh, um, as you say, a seduction, uh, a seductive quality to the idea of who started all this? <laughs> Who's the reason everybody's getting sick? It's you, Gwyneth Paltrow. It's your fault. Um, and, and in some ways, that's sort of less useful than other kinds of conversations. But talk a little bit about why, almost as a social convention, it has gained some traction. Well, I think the idea of a primary case or an index case has different meanings and different uses, whether you're talking about medicine and epi epidemiology or culture and society. So I think in terms of epidemiology, it can be useful to identify the first case in a community to look at um, perhaps how the disease got there, to, to look at contact tracing and, and try to look at these vectors of transmission. But I think within American culture in particular, um, the idea of patient zero has resonance because it's a way of assigning responsibility and blame for the spread of disease. And in particular, it can be useful a useful device to, to blame an individual who's acting in ways that are aberrant or immoral or deviant and find pin that person as a villain in explaining how an outbreak starts and spreads. Yeah, reading your piece, I find myself thinking, you know, patient zero is tic-tac-toe. Contact tracing is chess. What you really need to do is the chess. It's the harder part. It's the more complicated part. Who's had contact with who? Uh, but trying to assign, assign blame to this one index case does. And it does seem to be a way of othering certain groups, right? It's, it is rarely – patient zero uh, in the last 100 years or so seems to have rarely been somebody from the ruling class or the most – you know, the most privileged group. It's often an immigrant, um, typhoid Mary, uh, Irish-American uh, immigrant. Um, but over and over again, it seems to be from the other group, right? Yeah, and I think that's because this, this I, patient zero as a device is a way of gaining control over the unknown and trying to make comprehensible what seems incomprehensible. And so if you're looking for somebody to blame, it's it's human nature to to kind of pick on the most vulnerable. I think it's it's easy to stigmatize people that look different, people with less political power, um, and also if you're in the you know as you said if you're in the so-called ruling class, then it's a way to to deal with fears because you can say, well if I don't behave like those people, then I'm safe from disease from this disease, or if I don't look like those people, then I'm also safe from this disease. Right. We should say that the name itself comes from almost sort of a misunderstanding, right? I mean, it, it didn't wasn't initially patient zero, it was patient the letter O. Um, maybe talk a little bit about like how this term evolved. Right. So I think the the most the the best known patient zero within American culture is is uh, Gaetan Dugas, who who was a Canadian flight attendant who for decades was considered um, the person who introduced HIV to the United States. Um, he traveled widely because of his job. He had many sexual partners, by his estimation, um, upwards of 200 per year. Um, and he, in fact, was created as a figure. He was created as patient zero by a writer named Randy Schiltz in his book, And the, Bland, and the Band Played On which was published in 1987 and was a chronicle of the early years of the AIDS epidemic in the U.S. And in particular, it was a scathing indictment of the Reagan administration's inaction um, during the years when the, the virus was spreading in the U.S. Um, so Gaten Dugas, in fact, he doesn't, he, 
he appears maybe a dozen times in Schiltz's book. He's not a major figure in the narrative. Um, but according to Schiltz, his publisher during his book tour um, and reviewers picked up on this idea that Gaetan Degas was, um, was the individual responsible for bringing HIV to the US and, and starting this epidemic. In the medical literature, he had been referred to as patient O, um, the letter O to designate his location outside of California, which is where these studies had originated. But because Schultz was looking for a literary device and be, supposedly because his publisher pushed this idea, Dugas became patient zero, uh, widely reviled um, for his deviant so-called promiscuous behavior um, and igniting this, um, this epidemic in the U.S. that has killed millions of people. Right. So this is sort of a moralizing quality to it. There's a marginalizing quality to it, to it too. Who does AIDS affect? Well, gay people, hemophilia patients, uh, and people who use injectable drugs. Therefore, we don't have to do anything about it because we're not any of those things. You know, and that's very much, I think, about the Reagan administration's inaction. But we do it over and over again. Uh, and often it's because, yes, the Chinese, the Jap, oh, excuse me, well, we'll let's go back to uh, to typhoid Mary, the Irish are filthy immigrants. They live in squalor. They're not like us. That's where this disease is happening. All the way forward to 2020, and you've got Trump calling it the Chinese virus, virus COVID-19. And there's this idea, I think, that it came from somewhere else. It's this weird thing. If it's bothering us and menacing us now, it's not our fault. And maybe it doesn't even impact us uh, as much. I mean, with COVID-19, I think at a certain point, the people did say, well, it's a disease really it affects the elderly and people with diabetes and obese people. The rest of us get flu-like symptoms. We don't really have to worry about that. this. It's always tempting to otherize both the people who might have brought the disease into a population, but also the population itself. Yeah. And I think another peril of, of, um, of that, kind of, that kind of attitude is that it really can obscure the structural factors that affect transmission. So poverty, discrimination, access to healthcare, all of that, uh, public health prevention, uh, by focusing on individual behavior as the way that diseases get transmitted. And of, of course, you know, there are plenty of diseases that do actually transmit from person to person, but that really discounts the other factors that we can control. And then we have, we have some agency over. So, you know, whether that's focusing on prevention and shoring up public health or or uh, just working on alleviating inequality society-wide as a way to um, to make our society healthier as a whole. So, so communities are healthier as well. Yeah. I mean, if Dick Conniff were still here, he'd be talking about cholera uh, and in London. And there was uh, quite a big debate about where cholera was coming from. This a physician named John Snow, not that John Snow, uh, figured out it was a waterborne thing. I think there was another minister, though, who was trying to figure out how a pump that was used by a certain class of people, a water pump, was causing the disease. And I think, once again, there was a temptation to think, well, it's those people. They live in that neighborhood. They use the so the way they use that pump. They're the people who get cholera. And it was eventually kind of torn apart. And it was discovered that septic fluid was leaking into the field of that, that fed that pump. And it's, I think that's kind of what you're getting at. It's like, let's figure out what's really happening here, not who's who had it first, who gave it to who. I mean, contact tracing is important, but let's figure out the mechanics of the disease instead of coming up with villains. Right. And, and I think since you mentioned COVID, even, even 
the current state of the pandemic and or you know whether or not you think the pandemic is actually over um whether or not one thinks the pandemic is actually over the there's been pretty much i, I would say where we're at now is leaving it completely up to individuals to avoid this disease and if they do get sick to try to figure out what their resources are and how they can get treatment or whatever whatever they need whereas what we could have been focusing on for the last three years is um fortifying public health, working on indoor air quality, um, working on expanding Medicaid and getting more people insured instead of um, instead of dropping people from the role from insurance roles and instead of um, abdicating responsibility on a, a sort of socially society-wide public health um, basis and leaving it up to people to decide, how to manage their own risk when they wanted to wear masks, you know, make their own decisions about what kinds of behaviors they felt comfortable with or, or didn't feel comfortable with. Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would go further and say that, you know, what happened in May where the emergency was declared over and a lot of the protections and enhancements that you're talking about, particularly, you know, free access to vaccines and stuff like that, a lot of that is going to, it worked tremendously. You can just look at the numbers and say, wow, making sure everybody has health care, that uh, poor poorer populations uh, can get the same kind of health care, the same kind of vaccinations, making masks free at drugstores, all that stuff really worked. I mean, to really get the disease under control. Let's stop doing it now. <laughs> it just it just makes you want to tear your hair out. Right. I think it's a, it's really a, a short sighted understanding of the ways that diseases get transmitted in communities and the ways in which in which one person's vulnerabilities can affect a larger a larger population. Absolutely. We're going to stop here. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to Le, uh, Leigh LeMay, uh, New York City-based writer and medical historian, uh, PhD in American history, writes about disease, risk, and race. Uh, she wrote about this for Aeon, Eon, or Ion. Uh, we will come back and we will talk to someone else about our fears of lunar disease. Yes, those were a real thing in the 60s. I was bruised and battered. I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. Saw my reflection in a window and didn't know my own face, oh brother, are gonna leave me wasting away on the streets of Philadelphia. My baby's gone on a trip to the moon, and she won't be back too soon. She doesn't write me and I can't sleep All I hear from her is My baby's up in a rocket machine Since she left I do love that Louis Prima song a lot. Uh, we're going to get to this topic about what happens when your baby goes to the moon. Uh, what is baby going to bring back? Uh, but before we do that, I want to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She is our technical producer and a wonderful one at that. Uh, and I uh, want to thank, uh, obviously, Betsy Kaplan, senior producer emeritus uh, uh, of the Colin McEnroe Show and the producer of this particular episode. She's back. Um, I also want to mention that song about my babies off on a trip to the moon, the beep, beep, beep song. I think it's been covered now by Zane Weinberger, who's the uh, husband of our current senior producer, Lily Tyson. But it's not funny the way he sings it. Uh, 
Uh, all right. So we're going to talk a little bit about some fears that existed in the 1960s as we got ready to go to space. Uh, Dagomar de Groot, uh, an associate professor of environmental history at Georgetown University, is going to join us. His work has appeared in Guess Where, Aeon, Eon, or Ion magazine. The Conversation, another thing we really like a lot, uh, his most recent book, Ripples in the Cosmic Ocean, an environmental history of humanity's place in the solar system, will be published in 2024. So, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Colin. It's a pleasure to be here. And speaking of our place in the solar system, so in the 1960s, uh, it's pretty clear we're going to get up into space. Uh, and there are a lot of people, including the estimable Carl Sagan, who are, who are wondering about this. What if we go to the moon? Uh, who says there's no diseases on the moon? Who says we're not going to bring back the lunar equivalent of Virginia creeper and it's going to you know, crowd out all kinds? kinds of vegetation <laughs> here on Earth. So say a little bit about how this played out. What was decided about it? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think most of your listeners will know that in the 1960s, there was a space race, uh, a competition between the United States, NASA, uh, and the Soviet space program uh, as to who could get a human being on the moon first. And this rage for, for most of the 1960s, of course, it was resolved when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Uh, in 1969. But uh, at the beginning of this effort, it was really unknown what the moon was actually like. Could you even land something on the lunar surface or would it sink right through into the lunar dust and be lost? Like even that question wasn't known yet. And the idea of whether the moon was actually lifeless, uh, well, that, that really wasn't certain. People had been speculating for hundreds of years about lunar life. By the time you got to the 1960s, well, it was pretty clear that we didn't have lunar cities and actually intelligent aliens on the moon, but there was still a lot of controversy over whether there could be lichens in the crevices of the moon and the canyons of the moon. Probably not, but maybe microbes. Maybe that was a real thing. And the reason that people like Carl Sagan thought that those microbes might exist is because Sagan and another group of scientists, they were starting this new field called exobiology. It's kind of the precursor to today's astrobiology, which is all about the search for life in the universe. And um, exobiology kind of grew out of a broader effort to determine how life had started on Earth, how life could start, period. And it seemed by the 19, early 1960s, like as long as you had the right chemicals, life could emerge out of that. Sagan and others speculated that the moon had once been very similar to the Earth. And it seemed like, therefore, life could have evolved on both worlds. Now, the moon obviously changed a lot. It got a lot harder for life to exist on the moon. But it seemed at least possible that some kind of bacteria, maybe spore-forming bacteria, could persist on the moon, maybe even living underneath, just underneath the lunar surface. Some even speculated that this kind of spore-forming bacteria blew between the stars. So actually, the dark parts of the moon were made dark by just the concentration of bacteria from other stars. It was my, a lot my, of yeah, my mother told this. me that. She said, every time a star sneezes, uh, another star gets sick. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, and I think there was also maybe, and I don't think we really have time to develop this too much, but the 60s was also maybe a time uh, we weren't quite at... Um, 
Jared Diamond and Guns, Germs, and Steel. But we were kind of at a point where we were starting to realize that what happens in exploration, uh, particularly when European explorers came to the Americas, is they get a lot of people sick because people don't have immunities. Yeah. They don't have any antibodies. A lot of people get sick. A lot of people die uh, from diseases that were not endemic prior to the arrival of these strangers. That's often called forward yeah. contamination. What we were worried about here is back contamination. What comes? When, what happens when you come home from your journeys? So the, a plan was right was made, right? We're going to have to do quarantine, and it's going to be complicated because they're going to land in the ocean, they're going to get on an aircraft carrier, and then they're going to go someplace else. Uh, so they're going to be moving around a bit uh, more than most quarantine people do. But say a little bit more about how that plan worked. Absolutely, yeah. So forward contamination is when you bring stuff to other worlds. So let's say bringing Earth microbes to the moon. And exactly as you put it, back contamination is when you bring those moon microbes back to Earth. And it was really difficult to avoid this when you're bringing astronauts to the moon. Now, they're taking samples from the moon and bring them back to Earth, right? So you've got to isolate those samples and make sure there's any bacteria on them that they can't escape into Earth's biosphere. But it's more complicated than that because, of course, the astronauts themselves have been interacting with moon dust, maybe moon microbes. Those microbes could have entered into the bodies of the astronauts. And the astronauts could have contaminated the whole interior of their spacecraft, right? So you've got to isolate not only the samples that the astronauts bring back, but you've also got to isolate the spacecraft and the astronauts somehow while ensuring that they're all stay safe. Um, and that is just going to be extremely difficult to do. So what happens is they develop this whole quarantine protocol. And by they, I mean the federal government, so that astronauts, when they get to the moon, after they collect their samples, they have to clean themselves. They have to vacuum the interior of their spacecraft. They've got these filters in their spacecraft. When they arrive uh, back to Earth in the Pacific Ocean, um, they've got to be very careful about opening their hatch. When they do open the hatch, the divers that are sent by the aircraft carrier that collects them, well, those divers have to toss down some special suits that the astronauts pull on. Divers spray the hatch of the spacecraft with acid to kill any microbes. Then they're brought to the aircraft carrier and they're stuffed into a kind of trailer that's supposed to isolate them from the rest of the Earth. Everything is brought all the way to Houston. They're all stuffed into a great big facility called the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. And there the astronauts are quarantined for weeks at a time. Same with their spacecraft. And the samples they bring back with them are tested and tested again to make sure they're aren't any microbes. And this all looked very convincing from the outside. But as my work reveals, it's actually fundamentally broken. And those microbes could definitely have escaped had they actually existed on the moon. Yeah, it turns out, you know, a chain is only as good as its weakest link. Sometimes its weakest link is Gus Grissom blowing the hatch and losing the capsule. Sometimes it's just people knocking into things and things break. And, you know, lunar stuff comes out of a crack in something. And it, it was like all over the place. I do want to say just quickly, if you're wondering, if you're young and you're wondering, were we thinking about any of this in the general public? Well, we had a little bit of help from the same guy who gave us Jurassic Park. Michael Crichton uh, wrote a book called The Andromeda Strain, published in 69. In 71, it was a movie. Cat, we're going to play C1. I'm scared. Oh, Lord, I'm scared. You'll be okay, Charlie. We're pumping pure oxygen through your lab now. We know Andromeda doesn't do well in oxygen. Amazing, he's still alive. Uh, it's been three minutes. He's on pure oxygen. I don't know how long that can hold him. We're um, working on some ideas, Charlie. Ask your germ warfare friends. They have lots. Try to stay calm. 
What happened? The seal must have broken in there. They had the same thing at the lunar lab. That's why we used polychrome gaskets here. At least the rest of wildfire is secure. So, yes, uh, something bad came back from outer space, and guess what happened? So we're almost out of time here, but I do want to say that, obviously, we are going to explore brave new worlds uh, and new civilizations and all that Star Trek stuff. We're going to go to Mars, maybe uh, go to have something go to Venus and come back. Uh, there's going to be more of this kind of stuff. I, I mean, it doesn't seem completely crazy to worry about this. How do we evaluate the risk here? Well, uh- the risk, the risk is likely to be very low. These are microbes that have evolved on other planetary environments, even if they do exist, which seems unlikely. And it seems, it seems pretty unlikely that if they're brought back to Earth, they would explode into our biosphere and ruin everything. But we don't actually know what the risk really is, right? We don't know these microbes are there on Mars or Venus. We don't know what their capabilities could be, how they evolved, what their, uh, how they would multiply. So it's just a lot of unknowns. And in my opinion, what this story about the 1960s reveals is that there is a limit to the extent to which we could control microbes of any sort, microbes brought back from another world. But you also think about gain of function research, which is going on in laboratories around the world right now, right? These efforts to make deadly diseases more deadly give them new capabilities in order to better develop vaccines. Well, that kind of research could be very dangerous, right? Because these diseases, perhaps we could not contain them within labs as easily as one might assume. So in terms of the search for life on other worlds, wouldn't it be safer to search for life on Mars before attempting to bring samples back to Earth? We did that very poorly with the Viking missions. Some scientists speculate or argue that those missions actually returned inconclusive results about the presence of microbial life on Mars. Let's test again, and let's do that again uh, multiple times maybe before we risk bringing samples back to Earth. I think we need to be a lot more careful uh, with sample return missions. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And if you've been to Mars, wash your damn hands with soap and water. Dagomar uh, DeGroote uh, is an associate professor of environmental history at Georgetown University. Uh, his uh, most recent book, Ripples in the Cosmic Ocean, an environmental history of humanity's place in the solar system, will be published in 2024. You can bet we'll be asking him back for that. Uh, meanwhile, thanks to all of you who listened, and thanks to senior producer emeritus Betsy Kaplan for coming back and doing this. Said so long, we'll see you again. Won't you please take me along? I won't do anything wrong. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along for a ride?